In his book, The Eye of the Storm, Max Lucado, a great pastor and and best-selling author, tells a story about a little parakeet named Chippy. Chippy was just minding his own business one day, but in a matter of seconds, little Chippy was sucked up, washed over, and blown away. Poor little Chippy. It all began when Chippy's owner noticed that Chippy's little birdcage was getting a little dirty. And so she had a great idea. Instead of scrubbing it with paper towels, I'm just going to get out the vacuum and suck all of that stuff off the bottom of Chippy's cage. And it was going well for the first few seconds until the phone rang. The phone rang and the owner of little Chippy reached to grab the phone when all of a sudden her other arm lifted that was holding the hose and all of a sudden, zoop, there went little Chippy. Well, Chippy's owner immediately realized her huge mistake she had just made, and so she throws the phone across the room, flips the switch off the vacuum, and opens the canister to see her poor little petrified bird inside the vacuum canister. Still alive, barely, and so she grabs Chippy, and in her haste to try to make things better for the grave mistake she had made, she runs to the bathroom, turns on the sink, and holds Chippy under the flow of water to wash him off. Well, after washing him off, she realizes her poor little bird is cold and shivering, and so the quickest solution she can think of is a hairdryer. And so she grabs a hairdryer, plugs it in, flips it to high, and starts blow-drying her poor little Chippy. Well, a friend of hers found out about this and called her on the phone a few days later, asked how Chippy was doing. And this is what Chippy's mom said. She said, well, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. (laughs) Poor Chippy. Sucked in, washed up, and blown over. That would take the wind out of any bird's sails, wouldn't it? Well, we've spent the better part of this year studying the life of Paul, the Christian hater and persecutor who Jesus Christ transformed into a Christian missionary and apostle. Back in Acts 9, Jesus spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus, and then Jesus turned around and spoke to Ananias in a vision. And you may remember what Jesus told Ananias about Paul. Jesus said in Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, This man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Well, you fast forward about 20 years or so. And here's what Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. Paul wrote, I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles. You get the idea. On the surface, Paul and Chippy had a whole lot in common, didn't they? They were both sucked in, washed up, and blown over. But on the inside, Chippy and Paul were as different as night and day. After all that Paul had endured for the cause of Christ, Paul's friends and family uh, would have understood if he had finished his life just like Chippy. 
just sitting there, shell-shocked and staring into the distance. His friends would have understood after all that he'd been through. But we're going to see today that after all that he had suffered for Jesus, and knowing for certain that more persecution awaited him up ahead in Jerusalem, Paul was just as determined as ever to fight the good fight, to finish the race, and to keep the faith. Let's pick up in verse 1 of Acts chapter 21. So make sure you're following along in your Bibles. Once again, Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them for seven days. Uh, Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Potoimus, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. May God bless us as we study his word today. Well, in Acts chapter 20, as Paul's third missionary journey uh, was drawing to a close, he set his sights on Jerusalem. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Paul hoped to arrive there in Jerusalem in time to celebrate the day of Pentecost. Uh, He had grown up Jewish, and he celebrated the day of Pentecost every year. Even when he wasn't in Jerusalem, he celebrated it in one way or another. It ran deep through his blood. But he wanted to celebrate the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem for another reason. You see, Paul understood that the Christian church began on the day of Pentecost. You probably remember back in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost and filled those 120 Christians there in the city. And they took to the streets and helped lead 3,000 people to a saving knowledge of Christ. And so the Christian church began on Pentecost. So it was important to Paul to be there in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the Christian church. So at the end of Acts 20, Paul says his final goodbyes to the Ephesian elders. 
He reminds them of how he had persevered while he lived with them. He warns them about the savage wolves, those false teachers that were going to infiltrate the church and try to pull Christians away from Christ. And finally, Paul prays with them, boarding a ship with a handful of his missionary companions, including Dr. Luke, who would go on to write this book of Acts. Well, we get to chapter 21, and as we just read in verse 1, Luke writes, After we had torn ourselves away from the Ephesian elders, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. These are cities not familiar to us. Where on earth are Kos and Patara and Rhodes? Well, here's a map to help us get our bearings. So Paul had met with those Ephesian elders just south of Ephesus here in the city of Miletus. And after they tore themselves away from them in verse 1 of chapter 21, they sailed a few miles south from Miletus to Kos. The next day they sailed to Rhodes, and the day after that they sailed to Patara there in the region of Lycia in those days. Now it's modern-day Turkey. And so these were just little jaunts, little one-day trips on this boat that they were on. And so Paul realized that if they were just doing these little day trips going all the way around the coast of the Mediterranean, by the time they got down to Jerusalem, he probably will have already missed the day of Pentecost. And so Paul has this idea to take a larger ship there from that third city, the city of Patara, all the way down about 400 miles to the region uh, where they could get quickly to Jerusalem. And so he does find a ship and they do go ahead and pay the fare and join that crew in heading 400 miles southeast down to the area of Phoenicia. They end up in the city of Tyre. Well, we read in verse 4 that Paul stayed with the Christians in Tyre for seven days. And in that short amount of time, they form this strong bond. Look again at what we read in the second half of verse 4 and also in verse 5. We read, through the Spirit, those Christians there in Tyre, probably along with his missionary companions, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. I, I love to imagine that scene. That must have been such a powerful public testimony of these Christians' faith in God and their love for each other. They're publicly not caring who was watching, who was spectating, who was eavesdropping. There they were kneeling together on the beach, praying over Paul and his companions before they walked up that gangplank and boarded that ship. Well, from Tyre, Paul and his missionary buddies sailed just 25 miles south to Potomac, so that was just a little bit south of Tyre. They stayed in Potomac one night. The next day they sailed about 40 miles south to Caesarea. And this is what we read when they get to Caesarea. We read that Paul and his team spent several days there, probably as much as a week. And they stayed at the house of a man you might remember, Philip the Evangelist. In the early months of the Christian church in Jerusalem, Philip was one of the original seven deacons handpicked by uh, the apostles in the early church to help serve widows in the Christian church there in Jerusalem. And so we read about Philip a little bit in chapter 6, and then over in chapter 8 of Acts, uh, we read that you know, he was very important reaching out onto the mission field. 
We read in chapter 8, almost the whole chapter is devoted to Philip, that he went down into Samaria and did some amazing ministry there. He even led an Ethiopian eunuch to a saving knowledge of Christ and ended up baptizing him at the end of Acts chapter 8. And so he was a very important deacon, a very important evangelist as well, there in the early years of the Christian church in Jerusalem. Well, you fast forward about 20 years or so, it seems clear that Philip had laid down some roots in the city of Caesarea. He had a house there, and when Paul's missionary team arrived, Philip received them into his, own, into his home with open arms. Now, I want you to think about something for a moment, something I, I really haven't given much thought to in the past. 20 years earlier, Philip was one of those original seven deacons in Jerusalem. One of seven chosen to serve in the church. Remember, Stephen was one of those other deacons. If you look at that list over in Acts chapter 6, Stephen's name is mentioned first. Philip's name is mentioned second. And so these guys certainly worked very closely together in that Jerusalem church. My guess is that Stephen and Philip were very good friends as well. They served together. They ministered together. And remember what happened to Stephen. He was the first Christian martyr in the history of Christianity. The first Christian to be killed for his faith in Christ. And remind me, when those murderers picked up rocks and started throwing them at Stephen's head, who was the young man standing off to the side guarding the coats of the guys that were murdering Stephen? What was his name again? Oh, that's right. It was Saul. We know him as Paul. Paul was there as an accomplice to the murder of Stephen, Philip's friend and co-worker in the ministry. And then when that persecution breaks out against the Christian church in chapter 8, and everyone except the apostles are basically kicked out of Jerusalem and forced out of that city, who was the ringleader again of that persecution against Christians? Who was it? Uh, oh, that's right. It was once again Saul, right? And so imagine 20 years later, here we have Philip not only saying hello to Paul and giving him the time of day, he actually invites him into his home and hosts him day after day as they're there in that city of Caesarea. Surprisingly, here in Acts 21, there is no hint of bitterness or anger or a grudge. There is just warm Christian hospitality and along with it, forgiveness, mercy and love. Some of you have seen this video I want to share with you right now. It's called The Power to Forgive. And this never gets old if you've seen it before. And I just really felt the Lord wanted me to share with you this very powerful and real example of Christian forgiveness. Isn't that awesome? I love Mary Johnson. What a powerful example of forgiveness. Don't miss this. Without forgiveness, your Christianity is weak and hypocritical. With forgiveness, your Christianity is strong and authentic. It is. So be like Mary Johnson and be like Philip. Forgive. Forgive. Take another look with me at verses 10 and 11. A prophet named Agabus traveled the 60 miles or so down from Judea to Caesarea to deliver a prophetic message to Paul. 
He took off Paul's belt. He tied it around his own hands and his feet and said, The Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. The church's reaction to this prophecy is not unexpected. According to verse 12, Paul's missionary buddies and those Christians there in the Caesarean church pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul had now been warned multiple times that persecution awaited him in Jerusalem. God had delivered the message loud and clear. Paul, if you go up to Jerusalem, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be arrested, and you will suffer for my name. And listen to Paul's response in verse 13. When they urged him not to go, everyone, it seems, was saying, don't go, don't go, don't go. And Paul stood alone and said in verse 13, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Wow. Is it any wonder why Paul is one of the heroes of our Christian faith? If Bible scholars are correct, it had just been a few months since Paul had written the book of Romans. And there in the middle of the book of Romans, in chapter 8, verse 18, Paul had written these powerful words. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul said if suffering is down the road on the path to carrying out Christ's will for my life, then bring it on. Bring it on. Probably just a couple years later in the midst of Paul's incarceration, he would write Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 where he would say, For to me to live is Christ." And to die is gain. So Paul's attitude was clear. God, if you want me to live, I'm going to live for you. If you want me to suffer, I'm going to suffer for you. Or if you want me to be killed for my faith, then I will be happily, cheerfully killed for my faith because I'll get to be in your presence forever. Paul said, whatever comes my way, I'm ready to receive it. As long as I'm in the center of God's will, doing what he's called me to do. Lead people to a saving knowledge of Christ. Oh, it was difficult even for Paul's missionary companions to wrap their minds around how Paul viewed persecution and suffering. He not only endured it, he welcomed it. No, he, he wasn't a glutton for punishment. He wasn't some kind of wacky masochist finding pleasure in his own pain. But Paul loved Jesus Christ so much and he wanted people to be saved so much that he gladly welcomed whatever pain and suffering was necessary to get people out of Satan's filthy claws and into the arms of Jesus. Verse 14, when Paul would not be dissuaded, we gave up, Luke writes, and said, the Lord's will be done. Well, let's pick up in verse 17 here in Acts chapter 21. We read, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and the elders who were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? 
They will certainly hear that you are you have come. Uh, we know what you should do. Uh, tell them. Well, let me go back. I skipped something. They will certainly hear what that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men, purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Well, according to verse 16, some of the Christian men from Caesarea escorted Paul and his missionary team there to Jerusalem. They brought him to the home of a Christian man named Manasin, and Manasin and the other Christians in Jerusalem received Paul and his missionary team with open arms. They invited them in warmly, and Paul was able to report in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. According to verse 20, what was the Christian's first reaction when Paul came into town? At least the leaders, it says, they praised God. You see that there in verse 20? That was their first reaction. They praised God. Woo! Paul, we get to hear what you've done on the mission field. I've, I've heard these exciting things. Tell us about them. And they praised God over the, that wonderful praise report. But according to verse 20, the second half of the verse, these Christian leaders in Jerusalem had a second reaction. It was deep concern. You see that there? They mentioned that thousands of Jews in and around Jerusalem had accepted Christ as Savior, and they were under the impression that outside of Israel, Paul was going around teaching Jewish Christians not to circumcise their baby boys and not to follow any other Jewish traditions. Now, it's true that Paul had been teaching throughout the Gentile world that circumcision and Moses can't save you. Moses doesn't save Jesus saves, right? Circumcision can't save you. Following the Old Testament can't save you. Following Jewish traditions can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. But at the same time, Paul wasn't going around telling Jews not to circumcise their baby boys. If a Jewish man wanted to circumcise his son, Paul said, have at it. Go ahead and circumcise your son, but I just want to warn you that circumcision isn't going to save him. That circumcision isn't going to make him right with God, and it won't get him a step closer to heaven. Only Jesus Christ can do those things. And so Paul didn't dissuade the following of the law, but he did make it very clear that the law and Moses could never save And so it seems clear to me that the Christian leaders in Jerusalem were still a little wary of Paul. Some of them seem to have bought into the false rumors about Paul's teaching, and regardless of what they thought of him, they urged him to make a clear and public statement to prove that these rumors about him being anti-Judaism were false. According to verse 23, there were four Jewish Christians in the Jerusalem church who were in their final days of carrying out a certain vow that they had taken. This was most likely a Nazarite vow, 
And I think William Barclay explains really well how this Nazarite vow played out for these four men. He writes, This was a vow taken in gratitude for some special blessing from the hand of God. It involved abstention from meat and wine for 30 days, during which the hair had to be allowed to grow. At the end, certain offerings had to be brought, a year-old lamb for a sin offering, a ram for a peace offering, a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mingled with oil, and a meat offering and a drink offering. Finally, the hair had to be shorn and burned on the altar with the sacrifice. He goes on to write, It is obvious that this was a costly business. Work had to be given up, and all the elements of the sacrifice had to be bought. It was quite beyond the financial resources of many who would have wished to undertake the Nazarite vow. So, it was considered an act of piety for some wealthier person to defray the expenses of someone taking the Nazarite vow. That was what Paul was asked to do in the case of these four men. And he consented. By so doing, he could demonstrate so that all could see it that he was himself an observer of the law. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? Well, on one hand, it makes sense. It makes sense because, as Paul would participate in this, it would show that he was not anti-Judaism. But on the other hand, this doesn't settle well with us, does it? Because we've been studying about Paul a long time here, and he wasn't one to jump through all these Jewish hoops in order to please people. That wasn't like Paul. So we have to ask the question, why did Paul do it? Was he in the center of God's will, or was he cave into peer pressure here? Why did he do it? Well, I think Paul answers this question himself very clearly in his first letter to the Corinthians. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. He says, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul was under no obligation whatsoever to spend his hard-earned money on sacrificial lambs and rams and flour cakes for four men who had taken a vow that Paul saw, saw no need to take himself. But Paul didn't care about his own rights. He didn't care about his own freedoms when it came to advancing the gospel. If supporting these vows led to a more unified church, which in turn led to more effective evangelism, which in turn led to more people getting saved, Paul was all for it. He was on board. Paul's life was never about getting his fair share. It was never about exercising all his freedoms in Christ. It was never about doing what was easy or comfortable. How different he was from most American Christians today. Paul was laser-focused on leading people to the cross of Christ and on this occasion, joining in on this Nazarite vow helped accomplish that. So Paul was all in. Make sense? 
Paul was all about reaching people for Christ. He never compromised the gospel. He never compromised his conscience or the truth. But he would bend over backwards and do whatever it takes to lead people to Christ. Well, three life lessons I want to share with you today that we can pull from this lesson. I had four, but I eliminated one because I really wanted to share that Mary Johnson video with you. Wasn't that awesome? And so I'm going to focus in on three key lessons that we can pull from this passage. Life lesson number one. If you follow Christ faithfully, you will be misunderstood. Follow him faithfully anyway. Amen? The 19th century essayist and poet Ralph Waldo Emerson, he he said it really well. He wrote, Is it so bad then to be misunderstood? Pythagoras was misunderstood, and Socrates, and Jesus, and Luther, and Copernicus, and Galileo, and Newton. To be great is to be misunderstood. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's pretty well said. Uh, We could change the wording just a little bit when it comes to Christians. To be a great Christian is to be misunderstood. Even Paul's fellow missionaries couldn't understand why he was so dead set on going to Jerusalem when he knew full well that persecution awaited him there. So Paul wasn't just misunderstood by Jews and pagans throughout the Roman Empire. He was misunderstood by his own Christian friends. And that's okay. To be a great Christian is to be misunderstood. If you follow Christ faithfully, at times your family and your friends will misunderstand you. Misunderstand you. At times, uh, even your Christian friends at church will, will misunderstand you. You need to accept it. And you need to follow Christ faithfully anyway. Life lesson number two. If you are a Christian... You have family and friends all over the world. Isn't that good? This is so encouraging. When Paul and his missionary buddies arrived in Tyre, the Christians in the city of Tyre took them in. When he arrived in the next city, Ptolemais, the Christians there took him in. And the exact same thing happened in Caesarea and in Jerusalem. Everywhere Paul traveled, and encountered Christians, he had a place to stay. stay. And this this wasn't just a a first century thing. It wasn't just a, oh, we've heard about Paul, he's famous type thing. This was genuine, authentic, normal Christian hospitality. And, And it wasn't just something that took place back then. It happens every day today. One of the coolest ministries that our church gets to participate in every few years is hosting the Watoto Children's Choir from Uganda, Africa. These kids are amazing. Some of you have have heard them sing at our church in the past. And so whenever the Watoto Choir comes, their bus pulls in, they get to our church building, and they have a wonderful concert for us in the evening. And always that evening, we need to offer host homes for their choir. And so several families in our church are able to open our homes and take in a couple of those choir members and at least one of their chaperones. And my family and I have had a chance to do this several times when the choir has come, and it is always a bright spot in our year. We love it when the Watoto kids come over. It's a blessing to us, and we know that we are a blessing to them. And this is just normal Christian hospitality. 
And I want to tell you, some of you travel a good bit. No matter where you go in the United States or even outside of the United States, wherever you go, go to church when you get there. Go to church. You will find family and friends who will receive you with open arms. Life lesson number three. As you walk in grace, the Holy Spirit gives you the grace to forgive. Would you say that with me? This one is so important. As you walk in grace, the Holy Spirit gives you the grace to forgive. I believe Philip is an unsung hero here in Acts chapter 21. Most people wouldn't have done what he did, just as most people wouldn't have done what Mary Johnson did. In our world where people hold grudges and harbor anger and bitterness and unforgiveness, Philip walked in God's grace. So God gave him the grace to forgive Paul. I believe some of you need to hear this today. No matter who that person is, and no matter what they have done to wrong you and your family, God has called you to forgive them. And He today will give you the grace to forgive them. So do it. Let go of the anger. Let go of the bitterness. Let go of the unforgiveness. Walk in grace and forgive. I remember through the 1990s as I was going through college and beginning full-time ministry, there was a song that would pop in my head every once in a while. It was a praise song written by Vineyard Church back in 1987. And it was simply called, I Believe in Jesus. Some of you may recognize the tune, but probably haven't heard it in years. And it simply goes like this. I believe in Jesus. I believe He is the Son of God. I believe He died and rose again. I believe He paid for us all. And I believe that He's here now, standing in our midst, here with the power to heal now, and the grace to forgive. Here with the power to heal now, and the grace to forgive. You know those words are true, don't you? It's true. Jesus is in our midst right now with the power to heal you from your bitterness, from your anger, from your resentment, and your unforgiveness. And He is here with the grace to help you forgive. So will you do that today? Will you give it over to Him? That's what He asks of you. Walk in His grace. Hand those things over to Him. And He will give you the grace to forgive. Lord Jesus, we need to walk in grace because it is one of the most amazing gifts in the history of the world. The grace that you give us. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, sometimes we're very good in, at walking in rules. 
instead of walking in grace. So often we are quick to receive your grace that we need and your forgiveness that we need. But we're stingy with that grace and we're stingy with that forgiveness. Help us to freely pass it on to those who have wronged us. Because we know in our heart of hearts, no matter how badly someone has wronged us, it's not nearly as bad as how we've wronged you, our Creator, our Maker, our Savior. Give us the grace to forgive. Help us to stand and walk in obedience to your word, even when everyone around us thinks we're crazy. Help us to listen to your still small voice and the clear guidance of your holy word and walk in obedience to you, counting the cost and doing what you've called us to do. Lord Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the salvation you've given us. We thank you that we have friends and family all around the world. Help us, Lord, to open our doors widely to others who follow you. Help us to be hospitable, just like Philip was. Help us to forgive, just like Philip and Mary Johnson did. And help us to walk in obedience to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to accept Christ, oh, would you make that decision today? There is no better way to live than living for Jesus. And it's not complicated, really, to receive him. It's not easy to follow him, but it's not complicated to receive him. We like to condense it down to the ABCs here at Impact. A, admit that you are a sinner and need Jesus. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he's your only hope of being forgiven. And C, choose to begin following Jesus Christ today. If you've made that decision, we'd love to hear about it. And we'd love to talk with you about setting up a time for you to get baptized as soon as possible. We see throughout the book of Acts, on the very day that someone made the decision to accept Christ, they were baptized. They didn't wait even a day or a week. They were baptized that day because Jesus Christ gave us that wonderful gift of baptism as a way to say so clearly, I am following Jesus Christ from this point on. Let us know if we can help you with your decisions today. Or if you need prayer, just reach out to us. You can send us an email at info at greaterimpact.cc or give us a call at 760-246-4100. God bless you as you trust our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as you love him with all your heart and walk in obedience to his commands. God bless you.